axe of the blood god. <laughs>
I can at least, you know, do research and scour the internet, places like Schmupplations, and, you know, just kind of piece together uh, a narrative there. So I guess that'll be happening for the next year or so. Please look forward to it. Well, we're fortunate that this is a Dragon Quest year, so Yuji Hori is actually accessible this yes. year. <laughs> yes, he is. Yeah, that, that doesn't happen too often. Uh, the last time I think Yuji Hori was accessible was uh, when Dragon Quest VI came to the U.S., in 2010, I want to say. Oh my god, that was a uh, that was I think like I remember Nintendo making a big push for that one because they sent me a I was writing for about.com at the time and they sent me a a shirt with two slimes on it and it says be my be my valen slime. No, that was that was a Dragon Quest. I think I think that was a Dragon Oh no, that was Dragon Quest Monsters uh Joker 2. I don't know, the the last the last Dragon Quest Monsters they put on on DS. Uh, but oh, that, that was too, six yeah. was six was just a little bit before that. And um, yeah, they they actually I think Yuji Hori wanted a a uh, an American vacation. So he was like, yeah, I'll go do a press. tour. Why not? <laughs> so he came over to the US and Nintendo trotted him around to press. And I think then he probably did his own thing. But that was that was uh, one of my favorite experiences working in the games press because um, Nintendo invited me to have dinner with him. And they were going to invite one other person and just that didn't happen. So it was like me and Yuji Hori and some of the other Dragon Quest producers and some Nintendo PR people. And wow. that was, that was like a super surreal. I can't believe I'm having this experience kind of a uh, situation. Uh, yeah. one of those like rare things that is a, a, a um, you know, a career high point. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I did it was not, surreal I did not for me. Yeah, I did not interview him during that dinner. We like chatted about Dragon Quest and stuff, but I really kind of made a point not to be the the sort of like, ooh, ooh, tell me more, tell me more. And just kind of like, <laughs> you know, let him have a dinner and chat with someone who respects him but didn't want to be obnoxious. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that was cool. Uh, so I'm not going to be able to pull information from that for the, uh, the the Dragon Quest entry, but hopefully we'll we'll line up some other conversations with him. Something similar to to that happened to me just a couple months ago, only it wasn't dinner with anybody. It was me randomly getting drunk with the director of Monster Hunter World. <laughs> okay, that's pretty cool, too. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty fun, um, especially because Monster Hunter World is currently my game of the year. So um, it was a lot of fun kind of talking about like what really stood out to me about it, the game and everything, and like being able to go back and forth about that it helped that we had a really good translator. But mm-hmm. uh, Richard Garriott, I've had the privilege of interviewing him twice. The first time was when he was launching his Kickstarter for his MMORPG, which is still ongoing. And the other was... Yeah, that, that actually uh, just launched back in March, Shroud of the Avatar. Yeah. Did, did it only just launch? I thought it's been around for a while. It's been in beta for a long time, but the actual public okay. launch was in March. So that was, that was why I was able to interview him at Game Developers Conference was because he was there to kind of promote that. Mm-hmm. And he was doing the Ultima Online uh, retrospective, which we also talked about on this podcast, which was really good. <laughs> it was really fun listening to all the stories that they mm-hmm. told about oh, Ultima yeah, that was, Online. Oh, yeah, that was pretty great. Yeah, it was phenomenal. He's he's an interesting character. He he clearly has not lost kind of the passion, and you can see that in certain developers. You see the ones who get extremely jaded and mm-hmm. are like, oh, "I'm just here to make some money. It's cool." And then you see the ones who are clearly, "I'm doing it because I love video games, and I'm still super into this thing." Mm-hmm. And I think Richard Garriott. I mean, maybe it's an act, but it sure came off that way to me, right? I mean, he what just do you seems think? like a very 
like a very happy person, very, you know, mm. um, well-adjusted and, and content with uh, the way his life has gone, which, you know, that's understandable. It's gone pretty well. Um, I mean, he goes fly into space, space and stuff. Yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. like, isn't he like a spaceman? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's hereditary, apparently. Um, but yeah, he's like super personable. And I think he just really enjoys the fact that he's created something that's touched a lot of people's lives. And so he always seems to enjoy hearing from those people and he's he's very accessible on twitter and always tries to respond to people so yeah like i think he's he's just someone who genuinely is happy about you know the career trajectory he took so that's cool and the way that you were kind of you know, the way that you were tracing the formative parts of richard garriott's career which by the way if you haven't read the article you should you totally should um jeremy goes from like the teletype period to uh, a Calabeth and then on to Ultima one through three. And it's all very interesting and talking about how it evolves and everything. And it's, it's an interesting window into that period back when one person could just kind of sit down and essentially <laughs> put their D and D kind of adventures into video game form, which was how so many different RPGs actually got started back the, in those days. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, like turning a D and D campaign, like turning my personal D and D campaign into something was, um, a variety, a viable career path for people in like the eighties. You know, you have not just video games, but also stuff like the anime record of Lodos war, where it's clearly like, this is the writer, like what he did on weekends. This is he, and this is him and his friends. This is their characters. Yeah. And this is their campaign. And it is now a four part OAV that cost millions of dollars to produce. And also Dragonlance, the book series. Yep, yep. Also, Elder Scrolls Arena was originally basically a D&D campaign that they turned into a video game form. And now it's one of the biggest, possibly the biggest RPG series in the world. Mm-hmm. So good for them. Great but, D&D. But one thing that jumped out at me was, especially once he got to Ultima 3, you could really see him starting to strain at the boundaries of what was possible. And I feel like that defines so much, especially of the late 70s, early 80s, of developers who just, they really want to capture that feeling of realism, I suppose. And you saw then like Ultima 3, where he moved away from just combat, where he was like, well, I just wanted to learn how to program. I just wanted to learn how to get better at that kind of thing. And with Ultima 3, he starts to really flesh out the world and tell more of a story and have more complex and intricate and interesting boss encounters and really lay the groundwork for Ultima 4, which um, is kind of one of like one of his masterworks. Yeah, you know, if you look back at Dungeons and Dragons, okay, one of the one of the founding principles of this series that I'm writing is that there is no little rigid box that you put a game into and it's an RPG. An RPG, like Mm -hmm. role-playing game, means a lot of different things and we're going to experience that and it's going to make people angry because we're going to talk about stuff like Zelda. (laughs) But too bad because that does that? the same place. Like the the D&D experience was people sitting around and having an adventure together, being social, trying to adhere to the rules, but, you know, like a lot of game masters didn't force them to be super strict about the rules. And, you know, the, the way those play experiences translate into the limitations of video games where you don't have a social experience, where you have, like, the computer working within the finite boundaries of what your computer memory and, uh, you know, what the programming can allow for. 
you know, each of those has to take a different direction. And Akalabeth and Ultima 1 and 2 were kind of all over the place. Like, Garriott really just was just like, I'm going to throw everything in here. So you have, you know, you have top-down exploration in towns and the world map, but then you go into dungeons and they're first-person wireframes. So there's like a 3D perspective. And then there's also like space combat. And it's... It's just time traveling bandits. Yeah, he's just he's (laughs) dinosaurs. He's all over the place in these games, and I think, you know, he he said in in our interview that eventually he realized like I need to specialize, and what I can do best is tell stories, and work with you know two D graphics. So he cut out the three D wireframe dungeons. He cut out the science fiction stuff. He really settled down to create a consistent world, and yeah, like you said, Cat. Ultima 3 really does feel like the first time that Ultima was a cohesive place. And it, it kind of serves as um, the culmination of the first three games. Like you're fighting the the child, like the demonic child of the first two villains from the, the previous games. Except it's not a child, it's like a computer. So it gets that science fiction element in there and then kind of, mm-hmm. you know, just sticks a knife through it. And that's kind of a, like the cutoff point for that. And then Ultima 4 goes off in a different direction. And the land of Britannia is much more consistent, much more like, you know, classical medieval. Whereas before that, I think the, the world of Ultima 3 was Sosaria. And like it's, it, Ultima 3 is a super ambitious game. And a lot of people know that, you know, people our age know that from the NES port, which was kind of a mess, but it did really capture the, the the sort of essence of Ultima 3, which was, well, here's a land, and you've got to do a thing, and now you need to go figure out how to do that. So there's all these moon gates around the world, and you have to figure out how these line up with the phases of the two moons that are always depicted in the corner. You have to figure out how to use the temples to raise your levels and things like that. You have to get clues from the townspeople, and so on and so forth. So there's... It's very much of a just kind of, you know, it gives you some rules and some abilities, lets you roll a party, and then it just sets you loose in the world to figure things out for yourself. And that's very much a PC RPG mindset. Um, And I I don't think it necessarily worked that well on NES, but even so, like, that that was a pretty momentous game. And you can really see, like, an attempt there to, uh, to up the, the quality of, of storytelling and, um, you know, beyond that to make a really deep immersive world that's much more consistent than what had come before it. Yeah, I always wanted to play Ultima for the NES, but I never really got around to it. I remember seeing Ultima for Runes of Virtue, and I thought, man, that sounds incredibly daunting and extremely nerdy, and I would never <laughs> play that in a million years. Well, look where you are now, Cat. And look where I am now. Well, have you played it? Uh, have I played Ultima 4? I did not play it on the NES. So you weren't wrong. You would never play that in a million years. <laughs> uh, getting back to what you were saying earlier with Richard Garriott trying to kind of go with the kitchen sink thing, it made me think of something that Tetsuya Nomura told me in an interview that I just posted on US Gamers. So there's your plug for the day. Yay. Tetsuya Nomura interview, full interview on Kingdom Hearts 3 over on US Gamer. But he said, I, I asked him why he brought back the gummy ship. And I was like, is it just because this is a numbered game and you wanted to bring it back? I mean, like the gummy ship is not the most popular thing in Kingdom Hearts. And he was like, well, Hironobusu Akaguchi once told me that Final Fantasy is everything. And so I have tried to apply that into Kingdom Hearts in that I try to have 
a huge range of different experiences, and shoot 'em ups is one of them. And I thought to myself, oh yeah, no, in Sakaguchi's games, he would often include, especially Final Fantasy VII, right? I oh, mean, God, he would yeah. include so many different gameplay experiences, so it makes sense. But I think it's funny that Richard Garriott kind of discarded that and moved on in the early 80s. And we, and this is not to sl- drag Nomura too much. I mean, but I, I think it's funny that Nomura's okay like, nope, I, my game's everything. <laughs> We allow a, a minimum of Nomura dragging here today. Right. It's just not a complete <laughs> podcast without a little Nomura dragging. Um, yeah, well, you know, I think I think a lot of that just has to do with the scale of the production. It was a much smaller team, and also the the boundaries of technology at the time. Mm-hmm. Nomura is working on PlayStation Four with hundreds of people, so really, that game can you know just go on as long as uh, Square Enix will you know keep putting money into it. Whereas with Ultima 3, it was, you know, a small studio. Sales were much smaller. Um, there were, there, you know, there's only so much memory available on the Apple II. So they, they really had to say, like, okay, this is what we can do and do well. So let's do this and just really keep it focused on this. And we can do this one thing exceptionally well instead of doing a lot of things in a kind of half-ass sort of way. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a, I, I feel like, good creative design comes from limitations. So I'm all in favor of people saying like, Hey, let's draw a restriction here. Like when, when the pie is the sky pie, when this, what is the, when the sky is the, the, the sky is the limit, when the pie is in the sky and, and it's unlimited. <laughs> um, when the sky is pie. Mm, <laughs> yes. Pie. Um, you know, when, when the, the sky is the limit, then, you don't always get a focused and polished game. I mean, I, I hope Kingdom Hearts 3 turns out well, but it kind of feels like there haven't been a lot of limitations on that game. And that, mm-hmm. I, I don't think Nomura is good at staying focused. And that's why, you know, they needed to bring in Tabata to finish up Final Fantasy 15 because he's a guy who was used to working on PSP, which is a lot more limited than, you know, PS3 or PS4. So he could come in and say, all right, let's just get this done. Let's wrap I it up. I think you need someone like that to balance out the people who are just like, I want to do everything. This is why FF7 Remake is taking forever because he wants to make that snowboarding mini game something as good as SSX. (laughs) Okay, I I am totally down for that. The motorcycle wasn't even a mini game. Just make the freaking RPG. It wasn't even a mini game. Like it was just like a scene where you were on motorcycles. Yeah, I played in the Golden Saucer over and over again. Hmm. I, I played the snowboarding game a lot. You you just watch that. This is why they're taking forever because they keep coming back with it, and he's going, nope, nope, send it back, send it back. <laughs> Snowboarding or bust. But get it, getting it back, getting back to Richard Garriott really quickly. Um, I, I had never really thought of teletype being yeah. used to make RPGs. Like, what exactly does That's that incredible. look like? Um, well, you know, there there's a precedent for teletype video games because that's where the Oregon Trail came from. It started out as a oh, teletype mm. game, but that I was a much that. simpler prospect. That was like, you know, you got a description from the computer, you know, here's your current situation, and you typed in a command, and it would say, oh, you know, you've been attacked, or a snake is in your boot, or something like that. (laughs) Um, And so that was much simpler. From the way Garriott explained it, it sounds like his teletype machine, like every turn, would print out an an overview of the dungeon. Um, So you'd get like asterisks for walls and like, you know, kind of like rogue or something where you have, you know, ASCII characters for 
the participants in the battle, but like for every single turn when you have combat, you know, um, you're getting a display of here's who took this action and here's what the overview looks like now. So that's, I, I don't imagine it was the, the fastest and most, um, pleasant thing to play, but you know, it's not something that he was exactly distributing for commercial use. It was kind of his, for his own amusement. So yeah, like it's, you know, training wheels, I guess. Even thinking about like just those, those ambitious games on the Apple II, which is my first computer. God, I must've touched it when I was like nine or 10 and I used it specifically to write a fan fiction for tales of a fourth grade, nothing. The very idea of playing like such a formative RPG on that little machine that more often than not spit an error back at me. It's just, it blows my mind. It brings me back to when I used to learn how to, when I was trying to learn how to code in basic and I was trying to use that to create my own RPGs. <laughs> I mean, I think many people have done that over the years. It's just that Richard Garriott is insanely talented and he managed to turn that into a career because he was actually good at it and I was not. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think at some point he switched over from basic to, you know, machine code, at which point he was able to get a lot more done in the game. And that was that was a problem with the wizardry games is that the first four wizardry games were games were all done in basic. So by the time you got to wizardry four, it was like, oh, this is this is painful. Very slow. All right. Final thoughts on part one of your RPG history discussion with Richard Garriott. I don't know. Like, I guess to me it made sense to start this series with Ultima. I guess it would have made even more sense to start with D&D, but okay, that wasn't really in the cards. But, you know, Ultima really is sort of the jumping off point for computer role-playing games. It wasn't necessarily the absolute first computer game. Again, like in the the Richard or Robert Woodhead interview, you'll uh, you'll learn about games that existed in like shared platforms called Plato you know, people were, were making these games, but Ultima is the first one that really kind of distilled that D&D essence into something with a story and combat and a commercial release. All of these things are very important. Um, so it is kind of like the Ur RPG for computers in a lot of ways. And um, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, I, I could I could write full-length features about several of the Ultima games, Ultima 4, Ultima on Underworld, Ultima Online. Like, all of them were super, super significant and super important. Um, and, you know, it's just, I think it's that pioneer effect. Like, you're there first, and so um, you kind of have a head start on everyone. And, uh, yeah, like, Ultima, the games are still, they, they can still be pretty fun to play. All right, we're keeping Jeremy on the show because he is very knowledgeable about number 24 on our top 25 RPG countdown, which we kicked off last week with Final Fantasy V. And this week is another game that is actually from Square Enix. (laughs) I promise it's not going to be the Square Enix countdown. In fact, after this, we have quite a few non-Square Enix and non-Japanese games, but Let's listen to a little music from number 24. Yes, that is Tactics Ogre, Let Us Cling Together, the classic tactics RPG 
from Yasumi Matsuno, which predates Final Fantasy Tactics. And Jeremy, you're a big fan of this one. I think it is good. Um, <laughs> you know, I am a little disappointed, though, that you don't have like a Casey Kasem style person singing the number, number 24. Uh, I think you, you need to work on that for the future episodes. Um, yeah, so, well, okay, to start with first, I do want to say that, yes, this is a Square Enix game now. But that speaks more to consolidation and corporate mergers than to your list pulling from just one source. Because this started out as a game developed by a company called Quest, which was eventually absorbed into Square. And did they publish it under Enix's name? Was it an Enix publication? No, I think it was Square. No, I don't think it was Square. Um. I can't remember but, where I look it up. Oh, the, the original Ogre Battle was published in the US, I want to say, by... It wasn't Atlas, was it? It might have been. No, that was that was the remake. I don't know. In any it case... Was published, it was published by Quest. Okay, so it was self-published. <laughs> yeah, but, um, but Square did acquire Quest eventually. So that's why it's a Square Enix game. It's not because, you know, Hironobu Sakaguchi was like, now we should do a chess game. Um, it's just... That's that's how things go. Corporations consume one another, like the great Ouroboros. Like uh, sure yes. do. So so um Tactics Ogre. If do you, you want to give a little backup uh do you want to give just a tiny bit of background on Quest? Because they've been around for a little while before they made Tactics Ogre. Yeah, actually from what I've been able to determine, and there's not a lot of information about this in English, but it seems like they emerged out of a PC developer called Both Tech which was active in the mid-80s, and then sort of around the beginning of the 90s, I don't know if the company changed its name or if like all the people from the company spun off into a new company, but Quest started out and they were developing like action games. They made a game called Battle Ping Pong. That was one of their first releases <laughs> uh, for Game Boy. But eventually, they kind of settled on this role-playing thing. And the uh, the person who kind of spearheaded their RPGs was a young designer named Yasumi Matsuno. Yeah, Matsuno's name you probably know from Final Fantasy Tactics or Final Fantasy Twelve or the work he's done with Final Fantasy Fourteen lately. Um, but he was really into uh, sort of these complex stories and complex systems to go with them. He really loved politics and history and, um, you know, the things that you get out of that. So... Like the the concept of balkanization was really big on his uh, on his mind and and shows up a lot in in his works. And the first game he created was Ogre Battle, like that the first RPG he created, which is not really an RPG. It's kind of like a strategy game. Yeah, it's like a real time strategy game, I think. But 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 in kind of a like it's presented in sort of an RPG style format where your right. battles are like you know two sides facing off. It's really hard to describe. But sort of the important thing to Ogre Battle was that um, there was a morality system. And the actions you took in combat determined sort of your your moral outcome. And it wasn't so much like, go save people. It was more like, if you fought evil monsters, then that was good karma. But if you fought good monsters who were still going to attack you no matter what, that's bad karma. And if you tried to level up by beating up enemies that were much weaker than you or even slightly weaker than you, that's also bad karma. So you really had to kind of take a lot of cautious actions and really watch your behavior in Ogre Battle if you wanted to become a good and just ruler. And Tactics Ogre simplifies that a great deal. 
where it, it kind of um, funnels you into these key story paths, like these these points in your story where the plot line splits and you have these like totally different paths through the game depending on the choices you make. But it is very much about morality. And again, it's not like good versus evil. It's order versus mm-hmm. chaos. And if you want to stay on the order path, you actually kind of have to be horrible. You're like a bad person if you want to look at it in like the, you know, Judeo-Christian morality sort of way. Lawful evil. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but you are lawful. That's order. Whereas chaos, if you know, if you go with your conscience, that's maybe good, but it's also considered bad in a feudal system because you're, uh, you know, or like, you know, from Bushido or something because you're stepping away from the path prescribed by your Lord who you've sworn an oath to. So, you know, what is, what is the higher calling here? Is it personal morality or is it the system? And so that's kind of the, the central premise of tactics ogre. And it takes place in a medieval state that's constantly at war. And there's a lot of, you know, little people moving around, taking turns, hitting each other. <laughs> I mean, if you put it in the modern context, it looks a little like Game of Thrones. I had heard that Matsuno was actually inspired by the Bosnian-Yugoslavian uh, conflicts of the early 90s, right. which mm-hmm. more or less tracks with it being developed in 1995 for the yeah. Super Famicom. It was ported to the Saturn in 1996 and eventually the PlayStation in 1997. And Americans saw it finally in 1998, which was a year, I believe, after Final Fantasy Tactics. And unfortunately, the PlayStation version was not very good. It was okay. It just had a lot of load times that really mm. sapped away the, the energy from it. Um, much better is the PlayStation Portable remake from, I want to say, 2010, which was 2011, so actually. 2011, okay. Uh, that, that is so good. We can talk about that later, I guess. But, um, yeah, the, so yeah, the, the conflict, you know, in, in Yugoslavia, if, if you look at sort of the pieces on the board, there are invaders and there are different ethnic groups and the, the whole story of Tactics Ogre kind of gets around to like, what is the role of, of a protector of the people? Like, who are you protecting and what, what actions do you take? How far do you take it? Uh, so that's, that's kind of where the morality system comes in. And it's not, it's not black and white. Like, I don't know if there is necessarily a right ending. There are just different endings. Yes. As you said, it was remade for the PSP in 2011. Uh, Monsono did it on a freelance basis for Square Enix. Um, he was coming back after Final Fantasy 12, which obviously is a whole different ball of wax. Um, Hiroshi Minagawa, uh, ended up taking over the director's chair. Um, and actually, this is the one we're focusing on because I think it kind of improves on its predecessor on almost every way. And I think it kind of stands heads and uh, heads and shoulders over Final Fantasy Tactics. I, I think the remake is kind of the definitive version, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I really love Final Fantasy Tactics, but I do think this is a meatier game uh, and much mm-hmm. more challenging. There are some. This is not slagging Final Fantasy Tactics. I think this <laughs> Tactics Ogre is really good. Disclaimer. I would, I would curl up on a desert island with Final Fantasy Tactics for the rest of my life if you told me to. That, that'd be okay. But Tactics Ogre, um, yeah, it just has so much substance to it. Now, the, the remake does have a few issues, like forging stuff in shops and creating like the crafting system is a mess. But it's kind of a minor quibble, like. Otherwise, it does a lot of really, really clever things, and um, it really streamlines the system. It, it gets rid of a lot of this, the more punishing mechanics from the original mm-hmm. version of the game. In, in, in the original Tactics Ogre, your, your character level really counted for everything, 
And if you fought an enemy who was like one level higher than you, you would just be completely trashed. But the thing is, like your entire party um, had trouble keeping up with the main character's level and all enemies were balanced around the main character's level. So you'd go into a battle with like a main character who by design was, you know, two or three levels below the enemy leader. But then all the minor enemies would be like four or five levels above the rest of your party. So it felt really punishing and you had to spend a lot of time just farting around in the training screens, doing these like very repetitive battles in order to bring your party up to speed. The the remake gets rid of a lot of that. So it really kind of cuts out the crap and um, you know, it's a challenging game, but it doesn't feel like, it gets its challenge from tedium or from balancing, balancing the odds against you. It's just Mm -hmm. like, you know, there's a lot of complex situations. Sometimes you're at a disadvantage, but it's really just a matter of, you know, like figuring out the best tactics and strategies to overcome all the bad guys. And there are, you know, of course, special situational battles, like protecting a priest or something before the, the zombies destroy him. And if you save a person, then they become part of your army. So there's incentive to to help people out. Um, and some characters won't team up with you depending on your current alignment. They'll, they'll say, well, you're order and I'm chaos, so piss off, copper. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of complexity and replay to it. And uh, that's not even getting into the tarot system or like the Wheel of Time system or Wheel of Fortune, I think. Wheel of Fortune, yes. Uh, which is a, a whole other thing. So yeah, let's talk about what makes it stand out. And I think... Right away, there are a couple things about it that I think are just a massive godsend, especially compared to some of its predecessors. Uh, one of them is the ability to rewind to previous turns, which, <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe the hardcore kind of decried that ability. But maybe as somebody who played Fire Emblem and a lot of Final Fantasy tactics, I the ability to just rewind rather than having to save and reload. I was going to say, you're going to save Scum real anyway. nice. Yeah, yeah, you were just going to save Scum anyway. I mean, it's not like it broke the game because if you just went back one turn and then tried to do the same thing, you were just going to get the same result. So you might as well go back a little ways back. And it didn't overly simplify the game because you still had to sit, you had to actually work out what the strategy was going to be and how you were going to figure things out. It just, it offered a lot more opportunity for uh, kind of error and experimentation and that kind of thing and i was just like that's a really smart addition yeah so the the rewind system in this game it's not it's not a save scum kind of feature like if you step back you know okay so you cast a spell and it misses well that sucks but hey what if i step back and then cast a spell again no it's still going to miss like Mm -hmm. the these these things are kind of set so you can't just you know keep randomly uh, stepping back one turn until you get an outcome that you like. It, it's right. It's more a matter of stepping back to say, okay, so this is the point at which the battle went south for me. Instead of starting over from the beginning, what if I start from this point and mm-hmm. maybe hopefully my battle won't go south this time. I can try different tactics. So it's really smart. It's also completely optional. You do not have to use this ability. At no point in the game does Tactics Ogre say, oh yes, well now it's time for you to rewind. So if you have a problem with the fact that you can rewind, don't rewind. Oh, simple. That's very, very clever solution there. Don't Shock. use a, a feature, huh? Yeah, like, um, uh, like easy mode. Don't use that. Right. So it's the same sort of thing. Um, it's there for people who want to use it and for people who want to challenge themselves. Well, 
great. You have the ability to challenge yourself and you can play this hour long battle all over from the start because that's the manly way to do it. Cool. Go for it. Um, but then that also, it also applies to the bigger picture where, you know, like I said, the, the game has branching story paths. So mm-hmm. you can go back to previous battles. Like if there's a battle where you have an optional recruitable character, you can rewind to that battle and fight until, you know, like keep tackling the battle until you finally recruit that character. Or if you want to experience the other timelines, the other story paths, you can jump back to the branching points and you can explore those other paths by making different decisions. So there's, I don't know, there's like nine or 10 different outcomes to the game and you can potentially see them all. And the game has this sort of scroll uh, on the menu screen where you can, you know, it shows like, oh, you've traveled this path and this path. So you can keep track. And, and like, if you want to see everything in the game, God bless you for having that much time. Uh, it's there <laughs> for you to see. So it really is just, you know, you can get as much out of this game and as much time, you can sink as much time into it as you like. It is just a huge game. And, you know, depending on how you build out your army, every battle is going to play differently. So it's um yeah there's just a real there's a lot to like about it. So another thing that we we were already kind of touching but the story which very dark, very mature um this is just a Matsuno thing. It's what he does. Is he loves those dark medieval stories of intrigue and backstabbing and all of that stuff. And where Final Fantasy Tactics I I think Final Fantasy Tactics had a, a really interesting story in a, a lot of respects and it touched on how history is kind of defined by the victor and how histories can change in different ways. This one focused, as you said, Jeremy, on balkanization, ethnic cleansing, especially uh, massacres, uh, different like identities and how people will be like, oh, I am one thing and this totally defines me. And then it turns out, oh, maybe they're not actually that. But it follows three young people, a denim vice and God, I can't even begin to pronounce the name. Katuya? Uh, Katuya? Katuya? Katuya. Yeah. Katuya probably Um, is the the closest analog. They join a rebellion, uh, but very, very quickly you make some important decisions that send you down a, as you said, a lawful or a neutral or a chaotic uh, storyline. And depending on which route you end up taking, all of the different characters in the game can end up having, well, a lot of different fates, actually. Uh, I, I would say, you you want to say that Vice is maybe the most controversial character in the game? Like, he certainly has the biggest swings between the different routes, right? Yeah, so, um, you know, you can kind of see Final Fantasy f- Tactics as a simplified version of Tactics Ogre, uh, both in terms of some of the mechanics and also, or like, combat situations, and also in terms of the storytelling. So basically, Denim is uh, Ramza, and Vice <laughs> is Delita. And there's only one story path through Final Fantasy Tactics, and it puts Vice or it puts uh, Ramza and Delita at odds with each other. But the way it works in Tactics Ogre is that pretty much any story path you tackle, uh, Vice is always going to pick the opposite story path to you. He's going like whatever decision you make. He's just going to neg you. Like, that's just what he does. That's how he expresses his love for you. It's like blue in Pokemon. Yeah, pretty much. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, so if you choose to go order at the beginning, 
then he's going to go chaos. If you go chaos, then he's going to be like, how can you turn your back on your feudal lord? Damn it. You have to be, you know, you have to be a real hero and kill these innocent people. Um, so, so yeah, he's, he's always going to be sort of the contrasting figure to whatever story path you take. So that's one of the, one of the places the main tension comes into the game. You know, you mentioned Game of Thrones earlier, and I would say Tactics Ogre is the Game of Thrones. Uh, it's it's a song of ice and fire, whereas Final Fantasy Tactics is the TV series of Game of Thrones. So, um, you know, it's like the the books versus the TV series. That one is much more simplified and accessible and maybe sexier and more fun to to watch and enjoy. But there's going to you're going to get more out of um the other one you know the book or or tactics ogre in this case in, in this case because there's just there is more substance to it and the routes that you end up taking i mean they're really pretty much different games right because you end up recruiting totally different characters depending on which route you end up taking the story plays out so differently so you can really put just hundreds upon hundreds of hours into this game if you're really into it which uh, honestly i think that's pretty cool yeah, I mean, at the beginning, you have the two story choices at the end of the first chapter where you go chaos or order. If you go chaos, then you basically become a bandit and you're living on the run. So the um, the whole next chapter is basically you being hounded by the army and you're always like trying to stay one step ahead of the people who are trying to, you know, hunt you down because you're a wanted man. If you go with the order route, then you're, you know, you remain in the employ of your lord and so you're going on official missions and, you know, finding out more about the situation of the world from sort of a, an official perspective, you know, again, as a cop. Um, so, so yeah, they're very different. Like there's, there's one story path. I think it's uh, like a neutral story path later on. That's pretty much all you do is just fight undead. Like you kind of step aside from the whole army thing altogether and get into this more like mystical sub story. Um, so it's, yeah, like, it's the same game because, you know, you have the same access to character classes and combat skills and so forth. But what you're doing with that, it is almost like, you know, like here's the game and here's its sequel and here's its spinoff. The the neutral path is the most controversial, I, I might add. A lot of people don't like the denim in that one because he they see him as wishy-washy and milk toast. <laughs> so that's that's like the opposite of Shin Megami Tensei, where basically... If you don't go neutral, then you're a jerk or uh, a monster. Yeah, I somehow ended up being lawful in Shin Megami Tensei, Strange Journey. I have no idea how that happened. You weren't paying attention to the colors. <laughs> There's blue. <laughs> Everything's blue now. Oh, no, that's the worst. That's the bad one. That's yeah, a jerk a color. Jerk. Yep. The, the lawful path seems to be the most popular one because a lot of people feel that Vice ends up being maybe the most nuanced and maybe the kind of the most self-loathing, whereas he becomes kind of a cartoon villain in the chaos route. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting to see how everything plays out. You, you have many different reflections of the characters and how they turn out, and everybody, I think, kind of has their own favorite. Even, even the neutral route certainly has its defenders. So, so let's talk about the battle system real quick. Um, so the battle system, fairly different, I want to say, from Final Fantasy Tactics. and In, in fact, they changed it a lot in the in the remake the the battle system in the remake is i mean it's almost totally different right jeremy it's it's pretty different i mean the 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 super famicom one is pretty similar to final fantasy tactics i mean it's you know like turn based and uh i'm pretty sure it's you know like 
each individual character has their turn, so you're not moving by side like in Fire Emblem. It's, you know, each character, when their turn comes up individually, then they can act. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it is like a, a more primitive version of Final Fantasy Tactics where you want to be careful with positioning. Like if you attack from the front, your enemy is probably going to deflect the attack, maybe even counter. But if you attack from behind, it's very hard for them to counter or to parry. So you're going to get a greater advantage that way. High ground, especially if you have archers uh, or mages, is a huge advantage. So you have to pay attention to height and uh, dimension. That's one thing that the the PSP remake did a brilliant job of was even though it looks like a 2D isometric game, it's actually all built in polygons. So you can see the battlefield from lots of different perspectives, even like top mm-hmm. down. So that yeah, it's, it's that very so seamless nice. and smooth. Um, but yeah, the, the, the remake is, I mean, it's still kind of the same thing, but, uh, it, it does, it does play differently. It's been a while since I played it. So I'd have to, I have to go back and check it to, to give you a more nuanced answer. So the battle system, no phases in this one. Uh, instead, movements are determined by speed. And you get battle points. And if I recall correctly, they are used to get abilities for characters. You put them in slots. Those abilities end up gaining XP. And you have a certain number of slots to be able to build a character out. So obviously, you want... To and abilities are locked to a particular class, and there are custom classes. Passive abilities are quite important. There are lots of different combos. Archery is really strong. Uh, you can, if you're a min maxer, you can spend a lot of time playing with this system. Uh, one thing that's pretty notable about it: a lot of people feel it is maybe considerably more balanced than the one that you'll find in Final Fantasy Tactics. I, I don't think you're, you'll have game break. You have very strong characters, but I don't think you have like game-breaking nuke-type characters like you do in Final (laughs) Fantasy Tactics. Right, but that is part of what makes Final Fantasy Tactics so fun. It's just to be able to make the craziest damn character and just watch them go and obliterate an entire map. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, best moments. I don't know if I can call out specific best moments, but I will say that there are a lot of extremely dark moments in this game. Um, Vice gets hanged at one point. Um... Katuya commits suicide in another. Denim is subsequently assassinated. Vice kills a character right there and then after her her ethnic heritage is revealed. uh, Another character ends up in a vegetative state. This game really doesn't pull punches in terms of the way it treats its characters. In fact, I want to say most characters in this game end up meeting a really terrible end in this (laughs) game. Uh, another aspect, uh, another best moment in this game is uh, uh, definitely the soundtrack. Um, it's by Hitoshi Sakimoto, who did the FF Tactics, FF12, and the Vakiria Chronicles uh, 1 through 3 soundtracks, all very good soundtracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think uh, especially FF12's remastered soundtrack is really excellent. Yeah, I was just thinking about how good that was uh, a couple of days ago. It's a pretty yes. good soundtrack. Jeremy, were there any specific moments that stand out to you as just really special in Final Fantasy Tactics? Uh, battles, um, even just in terms of tooling around with the, the combat system and the other aspect? It's more like a gestalt of, of the experience for me, like the 100 hours or whatever I played. Um, there's there's lots of story twists, and I don't actually remember where all the story goes. I, I kind of went crazy with the, the Wheel of Fortune stuff, so I don't mm. I don't remember what follows from what, actually. Uh, looking back because I experienced so many different, you know, variations on the game, but just the, the sense of satisfaction from building up this army, 
and you know just just exploring the different story paths to see what could happen um yeah i don't know like it's it's not so much a single moment uh, although the you know the decision point at the end of chapter 1 um not 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 from the remake from but from the first time i played the game on playstation it was just like a whoa this is i can't believe a video game is doing this so it really you know it has those gut punch moments where you're like this is a hard decision and i don't know what to do but i have to decide here um and you know that that scene at the end of chapter 1 takes place in this village at night there's like a thunderstorm happening and it's just very atmospheric and it feels very ominous. Like when you make your decision, there's, you know, a flash of lightning and thunder. So it's like, you know, really kind of, maybe it's a little bit on the nose, but it's like, Hey, yeah, you just, you just made a big decision here. Mm -hmm. Now let's see what's going to happen. Nothing good's going to come of this. It doesn't matter what you (laughs) chose. It's bad. It's all bad. I want to say the first, the best moment is perhaps when you unlock the wheel of fortune and you start exploring the different possibilities in the game. I think that is a really exciting kind of thing because it really kind of unlocks the possibilities. And I like being able to go down all the different possible different routes. And Tactics Ogre has so many of them. And I think it's one of its definite best qualities. Um, so in terms of why it still holds up. So I, I suppose we've been kind of comparing it a lot to Final Fantasy Tactics. I I think that it's inevitable that it's going to be compared to Final Fantasy Tactics. Final Fantasy Tactics is obviously the more famous and more popular game because so many people played it back in the day. Uh, But yeah, stepping aside from Final Fantasy Tactics, I think Tactics Ogre really holds up because it is such a deep, granular, interesting, tactical RPG. It's maybe one of the, maybe the best example you're going to find of that kind of style mm-hmm. of RPG. Uh, Matsuno is Matsuno and Minagawa and all them are really at the top of their game in terms of the way the storytelling is handled. The the battle system is really great. The branching paths are really interesting and it also has probably the the single most definitive version, right? I mean, uh, F- Tactics Ogre Let Us Clean Together on the PSP was just really highly praised when it came out as just this exquisitely programmed game, this wonderful, wonderful remake, a perfect example of how you take a already very good game and really elevate it. I I think without the remake, Final Fantasy Tactics would take it, but with the remake, I got to give it to Tactics Ogre. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, the, the Super Famicom PlayStation versions of Tactics Ogre were very good, but you know, you get that PSP version where someone comes back to a work from 15 years prior and says, I can make this better. I can do this the right way. And, you know, without fundamentally changing what the game is about or even how it works, just modernize it and, and see, even when I say modernize it, it it might give the wrong impression because it does still look, you know, when you, when you glance at it, like a Super Famicom game, you know, it's still isometric graphics and sprites moving around on it. They didn't, they didn't, you know, uh, create like a new graphical engine in the sense of, you know, 3D graphics or whatever. But there is like the the fundamental underpinning of this new 3D that's been added to it to give you more options in battle. Like to me, that really does sort of define 
what makes this remake great because it's like, well, here's the game you love, but look what you can also do <laughs> to make that better to, you know, to get a better view of things to, you know, to play up your tactics and, um, you know, just explore more options. And then you get into the way the character classes have been streamlined so that they're less about leveling up individual characters and more about leveling up the classes. And you get into, you know, the way the prestige classes work and you get into the way the different races intermingle, you know, like the avians and that sort of thing and the way the different weapons work and the way there is a crafting system, which is a little clumsy, but it's still very satisfying when you can create like good weapons that you wouldn't otherwise have access to. It's just, yeah, I don't know. Like, and then, and then you add the, uh, the, the wheel of fortune system to that where you can experience the game in its absolute fullness. It's, um, yeah, it's really just a game where they said, this was great. Let's make it amazing. Nadia, do you have anything that you want to add? Uh, I have not played this game on the PS, uh, PSP and I really should. Oh, yeah. You really shouldn't. Not it, it runs <laughs> yeah, on Vita, so you're good to go. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. And here's the thing. Uh, first of all, let me just say how much I love the fact that this ultra-serious series uh, slash game has so many Queen references just like right up there up front. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty special. So that's, that gets my seal of approval right there. I mean, the, the, the guy who is your like wizard who gives you consulting tips... His name was Warren Moon, like the, the football player. <laughs> they had to change that for the the remake. They were like, okay, we can't have this guy named for the football player. Oh, sure you can. Um, like M. Bison. <laughs> totally not related to Mike Tyson at all. Not at all. Not, not in the least. Uh, but yeah, I'm generally, um, I, I've, Kat and I have talked about this in the past, about how basically there need to be more RPGs with, with stories that are a little more mature and that they are more political, more maybe a little bit inspired by uh, actual events, actual histories without being like totally like uh, gratuitous and uh, cringeworthy. Uh, Suikoden being a good example is one we cite often, and this sounds like it's kind of in the same wheelhouse in terms of story. So yeah, I'm, I'm down for that. Texas Ogre definitely had one of the best pre-order bonuses, I want to say, <laughs> which was uh, the very cool tarot cards uh, that came with oh, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exquisitely exquisitely illustrated i got them i got i I was going through my stuff when i was moving and i found them just randomly and i was like oh my god wow okay like and just going through them and looking at each one of the characters and of course at the beginning of them you're you're making these decisions uh when you're picking your character it's uh, it's the the old pick your name date and blood type kind of thing and it's asking you different questions like would you, let's say there's a fire. Would you save your friend, your family, or your kids? And I'm my like, cat. what kind of, fa- what kind of story, what kind of question is that? <laughs> Only my cat. Holy that's crap. It. <laughs> that's true. I would just save my cat. Um, <laughs> so how you should play Final Fantasy Tactics, or sorry, Tactics Ogre, Let Us Clean Together. I mean, obviously you should play it. You should go get it on the, from the PlayStation fl- uh, store and you should play it on the PlayStation Vita. Uh, it's, Sadly, not that easy to get unless you have a Vita. I mean, I guess you could get it on the original PlayStation. Or if you want to learn Japanese, there's always the SNES version. Though there was a translation patch that came out for the Super Famicom version. So if you want to play the original, original version. But for Americans, and really just in general, go get it on the PlayStation Vita. Yeah, that version's so. better anyway. So don't don't slum it. Play, play the best edition. <laughs> I like that term, don't slum it. 
All right. So next week is going to be number 23. Okay. Please look forward to that. All right. Jeremy, we're going to let you go before we go into letters, but uh, you want to plug something? So I'm not with US Gamer anymore because I'm doing Retronauts, the podcast, and related things all the time. So check out retronauts.com and listen to our podcast. It's all about old games, not just old RPGs. And also I have, uh, with in conjunction with Fangamer, a Kickstarter running right now for something called the Flip Grip, which is a, it's also related to old games. It is a, um, we're trying to get manufactured a vertical grip for the Nintendo Switch, which would allow you to play it in vertical mode as a handheld, which is great for old arcade games like Galaga and Donkey Kong or Night Strikers 1945-2 or even for stuff like Pinball FX3. So if you are interested in that, that Kickstarter is going on right now. That is Flip Grip, and that'll be going through July 9th, I believe. So check that out. Okay, that's my plugs. And make sure to follow Jeremy and all of the relevant social media platforms. He is Games Byte. Jeremy, thanks for coming on the show. Thank thanks you. For and me. we'll see you. We'll see you in a couple of weeks to talk about part two of your history uh, feature. All right, I'll be there. Okay, Nadia, I mean, last week we kicked off the Top 25 RPG Countdown with Final Fantasy V, and we got a lot of comments over on US Gamer, as you would expect. Mm-hmm. So people have opinions on Final Fantasy V. <laughs> they uh, certainly some, do. A lot, of, a lot of positive. A few mm-hmm. were kind of like, eh, I'm not into it, but Talrain is one of the positives. They say, I long considered FF5 overrated and only very recently came around to fully appreciate it. I checked it out back in the emulator days, but emulators were still so bad that there were transparency issues that made the ship graveyard impossible to navigate. <laughs> I remember that. That was me. I had to turn off the, I think, I forget what layer it was, but you turn off one of the layers and you can get around. I liked the GBA version well enough, but only only when I replayed the game a few months back did I truly appreciate what makes it great. It's just so impeccably balanced, and that makes combat fun. Mm-hmm. I don't like grinding generally, but it's much more enjoyable here than in any other FF I can think of. The time investment in jobs has an excellent payoff. The game gives you a great, uh, lots of interesting options, and it's just fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree a, with that. That's a good defense for it. And um, I can also appreciate it being the kind of game that you uh, you appreciate more as you maybe get a little bit older. And I think one thing we covered when at the last episode is Final Fantasy V was a game that we got long after we were really used to story-based Final Fantasy games. So to have this Final Fantasy game that only looked kind of retro for the time, but also just didn't really have much of a narrative, like, you know, backing it up in the days of, like, Final Fantasy VI and VII... That was a bit of a turnoff, admittedly, for a lot of people, I can see. Brian Clark uh, reminds us that the four-job fiesta has started. Yay! The wild card, not sure if I'd say it's the second best Final Fantasy game, but it is legit and still underappreciated. P-Dub wants us to troll everyone and make Final Fantasy thirteen number one. <laughs> well... Uh, Flipsider says, personally, I wouldn't call it the second best. My list would go something like six, four, one, eleven, and seven, with five coming in at number six. But really, there's so many great ones, it can be hard to make a list. With all the SNES and PS1 FFs being fantastic, and many others still being very good as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Donkey in the Forest says, FF5 on the GBA was my first experience with it, and it was wonderful. No complaints about it as second best FF at all. 
While FF6 probably has my favorite characters and overall story, I really do like the mechanics of the job system Final Fantasies more. Mm-hmm. For the most part, FF10 was also really good mechanically. Probably because Sphere Grid was similar to the job system once you got the spheres that let you jump around the grid. Anyone have a guess as to the other FF showing up? My guess and vote is for Final Fantasy XII, but who knows? Who knows indeed. Oh, I guess we'll have to find out, won't we, Nadia? Yeah, I guess I have mm. no clue, people. I couldn't even yes, tell you. Yes, you do. You know. <laughs> hey, I'm just stringing people along here. You've been on Slack. You've been <laughs> seeing the list as I've been adding it up and everything. Yeah, I've seen one the list. One thing I want... Don't get that one thing I do want to say is that one kind of thread I think going through all of this entire list is I often picked games that I think have held up or stood the test of time mm-hmm. or are still being played and enjoyed today. And that uh, covers five very well. Yeah, FF5 and I think Tactics Ogre as well. I mean, Final Fantasy Tactics certainly fills in that. It's really a, it's really a toss-up, mm-hmm. I, I think. It's it's hard to choose between Tactics Ogre and FF Tactics, but I, I think Tactics Ogre is so m- remarkably replayable in terms of all the stuff that you can do in that right. game, all the different routes that you can take. But um, F- FTL Mantis says, I really enjoyed the time I spent with the job system FF5, but I think the pacing and structure were very poor. I couldn't get myself to play through the third world after finishing the first two, in part because I felt I had already solved the job system by doing the monk ninja mix that just let me steamroll over everything. <laughs> I wouldn't have put it on my top 25, but I'm glad part to see how see it here because it shows just how many opinions on games can change in time. Uh, and FTL Manta says, if she hadn't already said there were only two FF Final Fantasy 13 games on the list, I would have thought FF 13-3, i.e. Lightning t- Returns, would have had a chance to at least appear. I think Kat quite liked it, though. That might have been Jeremy. I liked Lightning Returns a lot. It's not going to be on my top 25 list, but I, I liked I it a lot. It. Oh, Nadia, it's basically Valkyrie Profile. <laughs> oh, no wonder you loved it then. Uh, the the people who did a lot of work on Valkyrie Profile kind of did a ton of work behind the scenes. Uh, I've seen. I it was only always a rumor that it was meant to be a Valkyrie Profile that like that became a Final Fantasy thirteen mm, game. Right. But man, I can kind of imagine it. Right. Right. <laughs> and just Lightning Returns is kind of a treat. You can play it on PC. Um. Yeah. No. It was so weird. Such a weird game. It, totally apart from Final Fantasy Thirteen, it just exists in its own. I was world. actually going to ask you that. Like, is it like a separate canon from Final Fantasy Thirteen? Like, do you have to play no, Final no. Fantasy Thirteen? It it's the final chapter, but it's the end of the world. Okay, the world is going to end. It's got a little bit of a Majora's Mask kind of countdown to the final day type mm-hmm. thing going on. Lightning is the only one. It's an open world game. You have tons of different environments. It's this weird hedonistic world of like parties and crazy things going on because the apocalypse is coming. All the characters are totally different. It feels completely unmoored from the original Final Fantasy thirteen. <laughs> it's so weird and so great and so wonderful. That sounds completely it. nuts. I love it. Actually. Nate Dizzy refers to Ease Eight and expresses disappointment that Xseed had no involvement whatsoever with the localization. And, yeah, they had to pull the free DLC from the eShop because it was crashing the game, which yeah. is just kind of a bummer. good stuff. It's like, okay, I'm not a, a Sergen Kaga fan, but I appreciate the work that Xseed does. Um, I mean, as far as I, I, much as I've played of Sergen Kaga, I've, I've had no pro, no complaints whatsoever about the localization. So, and heck, I mean, Xseed has done great jobs with, like, ease up to this point. So, 
Yeah, it's, it's really a shame because I love this game so much and I want to see Eves get more of a audience in North America because I'm still quite a new fan of the series and I, I realize now, oh, I missed a lot, but well, this isn't going to help get people on board, unfortunately. GamerLaw says, I love FF5 and consider it to be a terrific choice for your top 25. Without the influence of FF5, I'm certain that we would have never seen other great JRPGs like Bravely Default. Mm -hmm. FF5's job system added new dimensions to the RPG genre that we now take for granted. It provided players more freedom in developing and advancing their characters. FF5's Test story may not have been as intricate as other installments of that era, but I think its influence is every bit as pronounced. And Molaran said, Skyrim's number one, right? <laughs> Not being entirely <laughs> serious here. Also, please don't do an RPS and make Dark Souls number one. It's a great game, but I don't think it should be classified as an RPG. Did RPS do can that? I spoil, can I spoil something, Nadia? Sure. Uh, Dark Souls ain't going to be on this list. <laughs> oh, no. It's a great game. It's, a, it's interesting. I think it borrows so much from RPGs, and it's really a classical dungeon crawler in every aspect. Yeah, but yeah. Um, the it- focus is on the combat, ultimately, about twitchy combat. Oh, 100%. And 100%. Did RPS really make it the number one RPG? Probably. Uh, this is, And this is totally an arbitrary divider. I'm just... I'm kind of trying to go more classical with right. these, with the RPG thing. Like games, it's like, yes, this is firmly in the RPG camp. So there's not going to be any Zelda. There's not going to be any Dark Souls. Like these are games that can kind of directly trace their lineage back. Right. Yeah. In the genre. Um, last one. Cam Chow says, I loved FF5. I played it back on the GBA, but never beat it. Played through it on a whim last year and finally beat it. Here is the part I am slightly, maybe not really ashamed of. I don't have time to grind. I'm getting too old for mm. that crap. So now I, once I get to the final dungeon and I feel like I want to tr- unlock certain class skills, I went ahead and tracked down to the usual grinding spot and just turned on a 5 of 10x or 10x ABP earned sheet. I know, screw me, right? I don't care. I'd rather have the computer simulate me doing this mundane fight five or ten times rather other than having to sit through each one myself. You are we live in the age of technology. We really Embrace do. letting computers take over the boring part. I was going to say, you anyway, are legit. I understand. I You have my approval. They finish. FF5 itself is a great game and a lot of fun, but grinding doesn't have to be a part of that anymore. Uh, by the way, every Wednesday, we will be posting companion pieces for the articles. Got a great response from the first one that went up. So go and check that out, in which I explain why Final Fantasy V is number 25 on our list and why it's a great RPG that holds up. Okay. Axe of Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Follow Nadia on Twitter at, at Nadia Oxford. Welcome to all the people who are subscribing for the first time after my appearance on Kind of Funny Games Daily. Thanks for joining us and letting us be extremely nerdy in your earballs for quite a while. <laughs> what the hell is an earball? Have you ever watched Archer? Oh, I've, I haven't. It's one of those series that I really need to get through, like from beginning to end. But I have watched like bits of it, and it's like every single bit is brilliant. So I really hate myself for not watching the whole thing. Earballs. <laughs> it's the summertime, and I am currently in the middle of trying to get through my backlog. I'm just like five missions away from finishing Final Fantasy, or sorry, Super Robot Wars V, and then I'll be free to pursue other games. But I keep getting distracted and playing Super Smash Brothers, and I'm playing FIFA. And I just started this game called Slay the Spire. Have you heard of this one, Nadia? Uh, I just learned about it today. It's kind of a 
RPG, but also a card game, also kind of roguelike thing mm-hmm. in which you fight enemies and try to get to the top of the t- of the spire. And as you go, you get loot from defeating enemies and you can build up your character and everything. And your goal is to build yourself up to the point where you can take on a boss at the end. And the boss is quite hard. Mm-hmm. The boss kicked my teeth in. Oh, I died. Sorry. It was over. My run was over. R.I.P. So that that just sold a million units. And when we did our top 12 RP or top 12 games, sorry, of 2018 so far, some people were going, where's Slay the Spire? I do not know. It should be on here. (laughs) So that is uh, something that I'm going to be playing a little more. Um, and I'll let you know what I think about it. Nadia, what's on your backlog right now? You're playing, oh, you're playing another game. Another game we'll be talking on this podcast in a couple of weeks, won't you? Yes. Should I say the name of this game or should I hold it? For Are, the- I don't know. Like, do you think we'll get stabbed if we say the name? I don't know. I don't think so. You're uh, totally playing Octopath Traveler yeah, right now. Yeah, uh, don't send assassins after me, Nintendo, just in case. But yeah, I'm playing Octopath Traveler. <laughs> no ninjas are coming in. Oh, God, here come the ninjas. <laughs> R.A.P. me. Yeah, so I look forward to your thoughts on Octopath Traveler in a couple of weeks. Sadly, mm-hmm. I did not get a code. Aww. Come on, Nintendo. That is kind of sad. Give me a code. You kind of need one. We, we need to talk about Give the me the hookup. Yeah. Well, which... Wh- uh, no, you can't say anything. You, you'll you get stabbed and they'll shut down the, yeah. the podcast. They'll slit the ninjas our are watching me right now. Okay. <laughs> we'll be back with number 23 on our list of top 25 RPGs and all lots more RPG talk next week. And until then, for... Nadia, myself, and thanks to our special guest, Jeremy Parrish. Hopefully we'll have a lot more special guests to come. Thanks for listening. Happy adventuring. 